Hey everyone, welcome back to Linux for Everyone and welcome home. This is the show about desktop Linux, open source software, and the people creating and enjoying it. And episode 30 is uh, a dense, informative, and just fascinating one because my special guest is none other than Alan Pope of Canonical, aka Popey. And Alan did not shy away from the tough questions. He actually encouraged me to ask him the tough questions. And I know that you guys submitted a few as well. I tried to sneak in as many of those as possible. The end result here was uh, uh, just incredible. It was uh, more than an hour of really stimulating conversation. And if you want even more than that, you can become a patron of Linux for Everyone starting at $2 a month. Every single patron of the show right now has access to the unedited interview, which is 96 minutes. You'll also get a monthly patron-exclusive live chat with me, early access to most of the videos that I put up on the YouTube channel, and early access to this show. If that sounds interesting to you, head over to patreon.com slash Linux for everyone, and thank you for all of your support, guys. So let's just jump straight into the conversation with Alan, because uh, this episode is all killer, no filler. It's all popey all the time. Let's go. Hello, friends. I'm Dev, and Linux for everyone here in Bharat. Welcome home. Well, this is a this is a long overdue pleasure. I'm, I'm sorry it took this long, but no, cool. uh, it was it was yeah. It's it's really good to be finally talking to you. Do you want to introduce yourself? I mean, I know that probably three people who are listening to this may not know who you are, but just for those three people, uh, I I don't like to elevate my status. I'm just some guy on the internet who happens to work for Canonical, and I've worked on Ubuntu for a while now. Been around in the community and got hired to work at Canonical, and. Um, yeah, since 2011, that's what I've been doing. So 2011, so nine years. Yeah, yeah. Nine years. And Ubuntu's been around how long? Uh, 15. 15 years? Yeah, okay. since 2004. I think mid, I think the apocryphal story is that Mark Shuttleworth came up with the idea for Ubuntu while he was on a ship heading to Antarctica or something. I don't know. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So your, I, I guess your your official title is is Snap Advocate, right? Uh, yeah, Developer Advocate, I think. Um, developer Advocate. Yeah. Okay. But you do a lot more than just talking about snaps and getting the word out, right? I mean, what is what is kind of if there is one? What's uh, what's a typical day in Alan Pope's life at Canonical? <laughs> or so, is there is there a typical day? So I feed the cat, uh, take the kids to school. <laughs> Uh, and not necessarily in that order. Uh, and then I grab myself a coffee, walk upstairs into my, my glorious office and start work. And, um, I've learned over the years to partition my day up because it's very easy to get distracted by forum threads, telegram, mailing lists, you know, drama yes. and all kinds of stuff. So I try and carve my day up. You, often in the afternoon, there are a few meetings because the Americans wake up. But mm. in the morning, it's usually mostly to myself. And that may be 
writing blog posts, making videos, uh, updating documentation, answering support questions. Uh, it could be anything, but I, I try and carve the day up in such a way that I, I have blocks of time that I can dedicate to doing particular things. So I've been around in the Ubuntu community for long enough that uh, it's not just about the job that I do during the day. I often spend a bit of time in the evenings hacking on stuff and communicating with the community. So in a previous role, I, my job title was community manager. And I still kind of have that in the back of my head. I still do some of that in my spare time. Because as I see it, there are people in the community who are contributing to open source outside of their day job. And while some would say it's good for you at five o'clock to or six o'clock to put down your tools and go and spend time with the family, I'm terrible at that. And I quite enjoy engaging with people who are contributing in the community because they're giving up their spare time. So I don't think it's unreasonable that I give up some of mine. And in a way, I mean, it helps you kind of empathize with those other developers, right, who are doing totally. this in their spare time. And, and you can kind of get a closer connection with how they operate and how they feel about what they're doing, right? Yeah. And when I started working at Canonical, I was already a community contributor. So I was already someone who was giving the most valuable thing we have, which is the time we have on planet Earth. I'm now being paid to do it during the day, which is great. But equally, I still, I still feel like I could contribute more outside of work. And so I do in between, you know, running the kids around and, you know, the usual kind of stuff, yeah. making dinner for the family. Since I started this whole crazy Linux journey of mine a couple years ago, uh, I've always kind of seen you as as almost a spokesperson for <laughs> Ubuntu and Canonical and not necessarily as the, you know, developer advocate, snap advocate, community manager, but more of someone who speaks and represents Canonical, even if it's not in an official capacity. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a byproduct of... Being my past role in the community team, we used to have a, a really significantly sized community team. There was like six or seven of us. And uh, that reduced over time when in 2017, when the company size was reduced, um, you mm. know, that uh, that was a, a difficult time. But some of that stuff still needs to be done. And you still need to engage with people. But also, I love it. I love hanging around in Telegram channels and answering people's technical support questions and sitting on IRC. And, you know, I love doing it. I am always, uh, I'm always just floored by how active these Telegram channels are constantly, <laughs> day and night, every minute of the day. We had one guy, it was, uh, Rob, he, you know, he stepped away for about a month because he was really working vigorously on a new project. And he came back and he's like, oh, 30,000 unread messages. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> But yeah, it's just such a vibrant, um, vibrant community in places like that. And you know what? Is it like that in IRC? Because I've never touched IRC. It used to be a bit like that. Um, for though there, there's the world is split into two kinds of people on IRC. Those who launch their IRC client, use IRC, and then close the client. And then as soon as they close the client, it's it's like a it's like you hiding behind a blanket in front of a baby like as soon as you, you can't see it it's not there anymore right and then the other type of irc user is the type that stays connected all the time and so they leave a client yeah. or a bouncer running somewhere 
And that's very much like Telegram. You know, it's always there. And when you open the client, you've got this backlog of stuff to read. And I was one of those on IRC. And I have a a client always connected. So if someone pings me in the middle of the night, I'll see it in the morning. Um, But a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people prefer to stay disconnected. And I think those kind of people don't like Telegram. So I think you're either one of those one of those two types of people. I started out as one of those types, and uh, I felt so invested in like catching up every morning and seeing what the conversations were. But in the end, you know, I'm spending an hour and a half catching up, and you just you just have to jump in there when you feel like you have a moment, or someone tags yeah. you and you, you something you feel like answering. And but yeah, it's it's insane how many platforms were accessible to people on now. I consider and, it very much like going to the pub. Uh, when I'm hmm. not at the pub with my friends and my friends are there, I don't have any expectation of knowing what they talked about while I'm not there. I don't have any expectation ah. that there would be a record of the conversation that I could catch up on. And so if I'm late to the pub, I don't expect to like sit there for 30 minutes catching up with all the right. conversations that happened before I got there. And I should probably adopt like that, that attitude. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way. I want to ask you, before we get into the tough questions, Alan, I want to ask you some community questions that uh, the people contributed. From Alex, what is your go-to drink when waking up? The short answer is uh, always coffee, first thing in the morning. Yes. Um, But I am um, a heathen. I am not a, I'm not a coffee snob. So I'm fine drinking instant. I don't, I don't have to have like cold pressed or French press or anything like that. You just like, as long as it's caffeinated and yeah, Yeah. so long as there's hot water in it, then I'll drink it. I, I will in a pinch drink Nescafe and be happy with it. I will admit that on camera. So (laughs) I, I, I guess I just have my taste is just shockingly terrible, but there you go. Reuben or club sandwich. What's a Reuben? I don't even know what a Reuben is. I don't know what a Reuben is. Hold on, hold on. It's an American grilled sandwich composed of ah, corned beef, Swiss cheese, sauerkraut, and Russian dressing with rye bread. I don't think... That sounds really good. I don't think I've ever had a Reuben. I've certainly had club sandwiches, mostly in hotels when I can't be bothered to leave the room and I just order, (laughs) send me up a club sandwich and a beer. This is from Olzy. What is your favorite tech, new or old? Well, I've got an, mm, I would probably say ThinkPads because I, yeah, I, I look around the room and I can see half a dozen of them. So that, you know, that has got to be the answer to that question. I, gotcha. I have a number okay. of ThinkPads and I, I collect them and I obsessively scour eBay for old ThinkPads to play with. It's the older models that you're more drawn to? Actually, I, I like, I like a nice spread. Um, in fact, although, the newest one I have is from 2015. So, yeah, the short answer is oh, yeah. Okay. Anything okay. from 2015 older. And most of them run either XP or Windows 98 or Windows 95. They're oh, really wow. quite old and crusty. And, yeah, I have quite a nice what little would, collection. So, like, if I were to ask you, what is your favorite form factor, your favorite laptop to run Ubuntu on as your daily driver? So, I would say the X-Series ThinkPads. So X220 was the previous Mm -hmm. laptop I had from this, which is actually sat just there. Um, And the X220 was was the last one that had the traditional ThinkPad keyboard before they moved to Chiclet with the 230. Um, 
it's getting a bit long in the tooth now. The X220 has a Sandy Bridge CPU, only supports 16 gig of RAM, which is still you know, quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but you could put two SSDs in it. Uh, some people have done hardware mods to upgrade the display to 1080p because most of them come with 1366 by 768. I think my brother-in-law actually did that with an with an oh, old really? ThinkPad, and he was oh. yeah he just he just said it felt brand new after that he you know yeah, replaced I, the battery, uh, replaced the drives, replaced the display. I need to do that to mine. All right, so let's talk about snaps mm. because there are there are some elephants in the room that maybe we can uh, get under control and get some clarity about. And I I know I know that Ubuntu it seems like always has kind of a big target painted on its back. It's the it's the easy distro to pick on, and I think that based on some of the questions I received for you, there might be some misconceptions or just some misunderstandings. Uh, that's possible. It's also possible people just don't like us, uh, and it's also possible <laughs> people think based on past uh, actions, things we've done in the past, that people think we're going to do similar things in the future. So, you know, it, I think it's always good to clarify those things for sure. Fire away. I'll, I'll sum up most of these by asking, why is the Snap Store not open source? That's a good question. Uh, I don't, I don't have a, a definitive answer, but I know we've previously developed things that have not been open source, like Launchpad. And there were calls from the community. Launchpad for a long time was the, it's the code hosting platform, the bug tracker and everything for Ubuntu. And there were calls from the community to open source it. And you know, why is this thing open source? And people could run their own instance of, of Launchpad. And we open sourced it. It was a lot of work, uh, but it was open sourced and it still is. And it's maintained as an open source project. And as far as I'm aware, there are zero other instances of Launchpad existing in the world. Like we went through a lot of effort to open source the thing and nobody actually uses it. Now you can come up with reasons why that's the case. And partly because back in the old days, it supported Bizarre, um, BZR as the revision control system and not Git. It now has support for mm. Git, but it's a bit too late because by then GitHub, GitLab, and loads of others had already overtaken Launchpad in terms of number of users, mindshare, usability, you know, in every way. Uh, so maybe we open sourced it too late, maybe. And there's a similar thing with the Snap Store is even if we open sourced it, would people actually run instances of the snap store and i realize that's only one argument and some and some i can hear some people shouting into their podcast players right now that's not the point you should just open source it anyway you should just make everything open source anyway but there's a lot of work for us to do in mm. order to maintain that open source project and i think the benefits aren't significant enough to make it worth open sourcing there are other parts to this story the Snap Store is very tightly integrated with Launchpad. So when you submit uh, applications, there are things that happen inside Launchpad. And so it's very closely tied to Launchpad. So if you did okay. want to stand up the whole thing, you would probably want to stand up Snap Store and Launchpad at the same time. Hmm. And that's a big beast. Launchpad is a monstrous beast to run. It is possible to run it on a single laptop, I think, but you have to have a big laptop and it yeah, wouldn't run very well. And then further to that, part of the reason why we wanted to have a centralized store is because we've had experience of having lots of diverse repositories. And one of the problems that the Snap Store is trying to solve is the problem of discoverability. Users want to get 
the latest and greatest, freshest software. And users don't tend to go grubbing around in GitHub releases pages or some download page on a website somewhere in order to get software. They want to open an app store, just like they do on a phone, find the icon for the thing they want, click on the icon and it to install. And yeah, we really want lots of people to use this thing. So we want to appeal to mm -hmm. lots of people. And I know I can anticipate the, the further shouting at the podcast players is, yeah, but Flatpak have this and they have multiple repositories. My point is that that actually replicates the PPA system that we had that wasn't successful. And PPAs are not discoverable. Like if you wanted to install the latest NVIDIA driver or latest version of um, Golang or Rust or something, if there was a PPA for that thing, how would you know that? There's no way it's exposed on your laptop. There's no way as a developer, you would know that that's the place to go and get that software. Whereas when you have a central app store, you can just search, find it, install it. And I think the, the, the way I'm not criticizing Flatpak, but when people draw the conclusion, the, the comparison between snaps and Flatpaks and say, well, Flatpak has this, they're going down the road of having multiple repositories exactly as we did with PPAs. And that's exactly what we learned and we want to get away from. So that's partly why it's centralized. Maybe in the future it will be open sourced. When there's time in the day to get that done, maybe it will be. I don't know. Personally, I, I will be happy when there is no more reliance on PPAs. You know, even if we're talking about the bleeding edge graphics drivers, you know, not having to add um, yeah. those two or three different uh, uh, PPAs, for example, that I don't know what they're called. Paolo, Paolo Diaz PPA for the, the Radeon Mesa drivers and, ah, right, you know, that, yeah. that kind of stuff, right? I mean, if yeah. it's just, and you guys are, you guys are definitely taking a steady march towards making all of those pain points go away. How popular do you think PPAs are? It's interesting. I asked for, uh, some statistics recently from our IS people and, uh, they don't give me anything other than number of hits over a period of time on a PPA. I can't get any detail about where those people are, who they are, or anything like that. All I know is relatively which are the most popular PPAs. And interestingly, there are a large number of people who have a PPA, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but there is a PPA in Launchpad that is more popular, popular in terms of number of people who hit it every day. Mm -hmm. And that PPA is empty. It has nothing in it. But it's because people read documents and blog posts and instructions that say, this is how you get that thing. You add this PPA. And so people just blindly do it, right? And so there are people out there who will blindly follow instructions. Even if they are patently wrong, they will still do it. And so the number one most hit PPA is not providing any value to any user at all because it doesn't it, have any. It literally in it. has no, no, no software. There are in no it. packages in it. It used to, but it doesn't anymore. So it's, I mean, so it's some kind of. Some clever people could probably, or... yes, it's a problem that people wanted solving, and somebody solved it by creating a PPA, but subsequently deleted the stuff from that PPA. Right, and now none of those none of those guides have been updated, and none of those forum posts have been updated, and yeah. and none of those users probably even know that that PPA is empty, and they probably don't even know that they're no longer getting updates for that piece of software. But oh that gosh. was their choice; they added that PPA to their system. That is a good argument against against using PPAs, really. You're at the behest of the person who created the PPA. To give an example, I followed instructions on my own laptop a little while ago to install Gnome Builder. And I followed the upstream instructions, which were add this flat pack repository 
and Flatpak install GNOME Builder. And I did that, and I had GNOME Builder. And I didn't use it for a while, and I went to update, and it failed. And it failed because that Flatpak repository's gone away. And so I'm now left with an orphaned copy, and this is why I say Flatpak is going down the same path that PPAs did, and it's not necessarily the panacea that people think it is to have hmm. lots of repositories all over the place. And in fact, the people who are creating Flatpaks have coalesced around FlatHub. They're yeah. centralizing all their applications in FlatHub. The vast majority are in that one repository. So I, I, I don't buy that argument that having lots of separate repositories is a good idea. Is there any truth to the the belief that uh, I see you smiling, you're getting excited. Oh, I know what's one. coming. Don't worry. I know, I know um, the question you're going to ask. Uh, do you? Do you? Yeah. Okay. Is there any truth to the belief that Flatpak is getting more support from distros and from the community than snaps are? It depends how you measure things, right? How is, what is your, your measure of success? Do you measure success by number of people who have published applications in that format? Or do you measure it by number of users who are installing things that are packaged in that format? Do you only measure it by high profile developers? Does it matter to you that uh, a developer that has an application that has one user, you know, where do you place your relative weighting on success, right? Oh, also, you know, how many distros have support for that, for that feature, right? And depending upon which one you pick, you know, statistics, what is it, 80% 80 of statistics are made up on the spot. Depending upon which one you pick, you could land on either side. I'll give you this as a, as a, a marker. For every application which is published in FlatHub and published in the Snap Store, there are around 10 times more people installing the Snap than there are installing the Flatpak. And there are more than 10 times more applications in the Snap Store than there are in FlatHub. Now, that's my measure of, you know, we're doing okay. Someone else's measure of okay is there are more distributions out there which have Flatpak support built into their app store. Okay, and that's that may be considered their success metric, right? Because um, Pop! OS has Flatpak support, Mint has Flatpak support, and a couple of others have Flatpak support. But mm -hmm. if you look at the metrics, if you go to, you could do this yourself, go to snapgraph.io slash core, C-O-R-E, and core is like a, a small package, a runtime. Simply, you can think of it equated to kind of like the Flatpak runtimes. And on the right-hand side, down the bottom of the web page, there is a logarithmic scale showing all the distributions that have that snap installed. So all of these distributions have at least one snap installed on them. And you can see that list of distributions is incredibly long. So while you could argue, yeah, okay, snap support isn't baked into all these distributions, people are still going out of their way to add Snap support in order to get applications on those systems. So people do want this thing, even if it's not baked into the distro. And that, to me, is a measure of success. If people are going to go out of their way to install Snap support on Red Hat Linux, then we're doing something right. One thing I would say, whenever we're talking to software developers about packaging their stuff as a Snap, we never, ever talk down the other options 
The other options are there. You could build an app image, you could build a flat pack, you could build a deb. We talk about the benefits you can get from having something as a snap. But if mm-hmm. someone wants to build something as a flat pack or a deb or an app image, go right ahead. We're, we're not trying to get people in exclusivity agreements. We're not like Epic or anything right, like right, that. Right. We, we want the applications to be surface to users because the, the ultimate goal of this is getting software in front of users and making it easy for users to discover new software. That's the whole point of this thing. I'm not a developer of any kind. I know very little about the technicalities of this kind of stuff. And I think it might be interesting to hear what um, what kind of work goes into packaging up a piece of software for a snap and for a flat pack. Is there is it any kind of increased load on the the software developer to say, okay, I'm going to make both a snap and a flat pack? It's very difficult for me to answer for a flat pack because I I've never made one. So I honestly don't know what the process is there. I know that if you are making from scratch, from whole cloth, you're making a brand new GTK GNOME application Mm -hmm. and you use a tool like like, uh, GNOME Builder, uh, which is does an awful lot of the work for you, then I imagine it's pretty straightforward. If you are a a developer of an application that's not written in GTK, that already pre-existed and you want to create a flat pack, I imagine there's documentation. I imagine it's not that painful because, you know, plenty of people have done it. I don't know. But for snaps, I can certainly say that making a snap is, it depends on the application. In some cases, a snap just contains the deb. Like, and an, an, an app developer who's already making a deb can just consume the deb and put it inside a snap and they're done. In some cases, that works. Huh. In other cases, they build it from source. Um, and they compile their application from source, and then the results of that goes into the snap. Um, we have a ton of documentation. We could certainly improve that documentation. We get feedback from people saying, I tried to snap this thing, and it was hard. We have a okay. community forum where we try and help people you know, get over the line. But there are thousands of snaps in the snap store, and so we must be doing something right. It can't be that hard if there are thousands of them in there. I will sometimes, on a Friday night, go and stumble across new pieces of software. And uh, because I'm, you know, bored and I don't really want to watch what my wife is watching on telly, I'll start making a snap of something. And I can often turn a snap around in an hour, let's say. So you go from having never seen this piece of software before into having a snap published in the store and available for people to download within one hour. Give us some examples of what you've Open done Open Spades was one. That was one. Uh, I, I, I've honestly lost count. There's quite a lot. So I, I, that's not a like, humble brag, but I, I, I couldn't, you know, there, there are quite a lot. Um, the library, um, the video platform, I made a snap mm-hmm. out of that because someone, I noticed someone was asking. And that was pretty straightforward. It just, that one literally just takes the deb and injects it into the snap. And that me that makes it, you know, you might think, well, that's cheating. Yeah, that's that's not packaging software, that's repackaging software. And it is, but if you can make the barrier to entry for someone so low that they're already making a deb and all they've got to do is just put an extra step on the end of the chain, at the end of their release process, that just takes that mm-hmm. deb and puts it in another package and pushes it to the store. You know, and they might get more users as a result, then everyone's right. that that's I mean, that's the end goal, right? It's right. the developers getting more users. It is users having access to more software. 
part of my job, you know, you asked right at the beginning, what does my job entail? A lot of it is talking to developers and saying, hey, uh, you should make a snap of your thing because your download is buried somewhere on your downloads page. We can help yeah, make it more yeah. discoverable by putting it in the Snap Store. And I'll have a conversation with them. And it might be over email. I might have a hangout with them. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just a couple of mails bounce backwards and forwards. And then two days later, I see that their application suddenly appears in the Snap Store. I had that last week. I emailed half a dozen uh, people and said, hey, did you know you could just put that in the Snap Store? Here are the steps. And there's just like three steps. Register in the store. Register the name. Upload your Snap you're done. The, the thing is in the store now. And that, and the, the thing that pushes me is, you know, people often say, oh, there's no apps on Linux or, you know, all the apps are rubbish. And that's completely not true. There's tons of applications out there. There's tons of great applications out there and there are developers making software, but you just don't know about it because it's buried somewhere on a, a weird download page that you've never seen. And if we can take that software and put it in the storefront right in front of you, then yeah. it benefits you because you you're exposed to this new software on Linux, and it benefits the developer because they get more users. My wife, when she first tried Ubuntu for the first time in I don't know nine ten years, she was floored by the fact that she could just open up the um, the software center and install Spotify. You know, yeah. because the first sh- the first thing she did was what she went to Spotify.com and guess what Spotify told her? Sorry, this isn't available in your country. Hmm. And uh, and then she went to the the Snap Store. Boom, done. And, it's those and, kind of stories that make it, I think, a com- very compelling platform. And I and I get it that there are there are people who um, Linux software purists who don't like change for for want of a better word, and uh, you know dislike certain features about the Snap Store. And I'm sure you've got other questions coming up with you know specifics. And that's fine. I'm happy to answer those. But we're really targeting those users, those users who have didn't realize they could install Discord on Linux or didn't realize that there was an app that let them, you know, edit drawings and stuff like that. We want to expose that stuff to users. And that, that App Store model is very powerful. We update the apps that are shown in GNOME software on a regular basis. And when we put something in that list, people do install it. Like a lot of Linux nerds will tell you, oh, I just use apt on the command line or I only use Pac-Man to install software. That's not normal, right? Normal people don't do that. Normal people open an app store, browse around, click on the games category, scroll around a little bit, read the description and go, that looks nice. Click it and install it. Yeah, That's yeah. what normal people do. You, you love doing all that via the command line? More power to you. You have that mm-hmm. option. I think that's terrific. Right. But, and there's uh, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having total control over your system, but don't be under the misapprehension that everybody does it like that. Uh, I got a question here and I, I don't actually know if this is true or not. I haven't really done any comparisons. Why do snaps load slower than apt or dev packages on the first run? So snaps are confined applications predominantly. Um, and they're delivered as a compressed file. So when you click the install button, you download a compressed file, a bit like a zip file. It's called SquashFS, mm-hmm. and it stays compressed on your hard disk. It doesn't get um, unpacked on the drive. Um, and a byproduct of those two things is there's a little overhead 
on opening files that are inside that compressed format. For some applications, that overhead is worse than others. So a very small application, like a little command line utility, actually isn't slower as a snap. And snap in general isn't slower than Debs. You could put them side by side, and mm-hmm. in general, they're the same speed. But there are certain classes of applications that a lot of your listeners uh, will be running, desktop applications, where there is a marked difference. And part of the reason is the overhead of that decompression and part of it is because the application is confined on first launch snap has to do some shenanigans in order to make that application see the world in the way that it expects to because when when an application is confined it has like a restricted view of the world and it, it has a fake view of the world when you launch a graphical application it needs to have things like font caches and icon caches and it expects files to be in particular places and we have to f- set up that structure on first launch and that's part of the reason why some desktop applications on first launch are a bit slow is because they have to set up that infrastructure. Subsequent launches should be faster. Now, we are working hard on solving this. We have identified three or four pain points and we are working very hard on this so that it will be um, less noticeable between snaps and apps. But yeah, it's a, it's a known nice. problem and it is frustrating okay. for users. I completely get it. You know, I wanted to circle back actually to to the conversations you have with developers about packaging things up into a snap. Anyone that ends up doing that, that's obviously a success story to you guys. But are there any big personal success stories that you have there with any well-known um, software publishers? So we often have uh, Snapcraft summits. And a Snapcraft summit is where a bunch of us uh, get together in a location and we invite software developers to come along. And a year or so ago, we had one in Seattle. And we had people there from Microsoft. We had someone there from Plex. And we had people from a whole bunch of uh, of um, uh, software developers, like high-profile software developers you've heard of. And part of the reason for doing that is to get them over the line, get them in the store. And part of the reason for doing that is to understand pain points so that we can like the whole point of being a developer advocate is partly to promote the product and talk talk up the product but part of it is Mm -hmm. to feed back from external developers to our internal teams and let them know hey this is a problem this doesn't work we need to fix this in order to solve this problem there's been a whole bunch of those over the over the years there's one uh which is very high profile and it took us a year from having the first conversation with them to it actually landing in the store. And that entire year, we had a number of meetings with them. We had to go through legal conversations with them. We provided them with the terms and conditions of the store, and they have to run it past their legal team because they're a high-profile brand, and they can't just submit their application any old way. They have to run it past their legal team and make sure that we're compliant. And that took some time. And I think that's the hidden stuff under the covers that people don't realize. It's not just a case of, you know, phone up a developer and say, hey, you should put it in the Snap Store. Okay, thanks. Bye. And then slam the phone down. It's it's a nurturing conversation that goes on over a long period of time. And for one of those, I, I won't tell you which one it was, but it was over a year 
from start to finish to them getting in the store. And now that application has hundreds of thousands of people installing it and running it on a regular basis. Man, I wish that, I knew what it was. That took, that took, that took a year. Uh, I mean, wow. I mean, you could see all the high-profile ones that we've got in the store, and and some of those mm-hmm. took a long time, and some of the some of them were pretty quick, and you just contact them and they go, yeah, okay. But for the ones that have corporate backing from a significant uh, size software vendor, sure. it's not as straightforward as that, um, and it and it takes a lot of work. Do you have any follow-up conversations after they've been in the Snap Store for a while? Are they are they contacting you and giving you like any kind of um any kind of gauge on on whether they're pleased or not about the the snaps performance or about you know maybe a new audience or anything like that yeah totally uh sometimes we'll report when stuff is broken uh so you know if a user tells us hey that snap doesn't work anymore we have a hotline if you like directly to the no. developer who manages <laughs> the, red the phone. release yeah yeah exactly <laughs> we pick up the bat phone and contact the developer and they they're usually pretty responsive um we had one occasion where um, a snap wasn't being updated in the snap store and the internet went into meltdown about, oh, it's, you know, they, they don't care about it anymore. See, snaps falling apart because one developer hadn't updated their snap. And it turns out the developer who was responsible for that was just on holiday and they hadn't automated the process and somebody else had released a new <laughs> version and they hadn't, oh, he no. didn't realize they were going to release a new version while he was on holiday. And it's like, okay, there's improvements to the process there. You could automate things and, and, you know, move the labor around the company. So it's not just one guy's responsibility. You know, there's, there's things you could do to fix that, but the internet goes into meltdown and tries to come up with conspiracy theories as to why stuff happens. But it's great when you, when you talk to the developers, we all get a little bit tired of this stuff because often it's just not true. <laughs> Something that kind of fascinates me is the legalities of packaging up software for Snap or Flatpak or even uh, more specifically games. Mm-hmm. Okay. When we're talking about, um, let's say a standalone game client that you can install through Lutris or through the Snap Store. If you know, what are the legalities around that? I'm, I had a, a member of my community recently who uh, I'm not going to call him out just because I don't know how sensitive this topic will end up being. Uh, it was really awesome what he did, but he packaged up one of my favorite games as a snap. And I started wondering, could he get in trouble for that? Could Canonical get in trouble for that? So we obviously have terms and conditions for the store. And, uh, you know, you need to have the legal right to distribute the thing that you're distributing if you're publishing it right Hmm. and if you're publishing your own software then typically you will have the rights to do that so that's okay of course yeah and we would prefer that developers publish their own software but that's not always the case because you know linux is a bit of a niche and often developers will say i'm not interested in publishing it over there you know you've seen all the problem with you know developers pulling their apps support their game support for linux and you know citing whatever reasons but often developers will say i don't have time for that it's not financially worthwhile Mm -hmm. but what they'll often say is go ahead and do that if you want to i don't care others will say absolutely no don't do that or will have that written into their legal agreements to say don't do it and part of the reason they say don't do it is because what if they start getting popular in that store and they start getting support requests from people saying, hey, uh, I installed your game from the Snap Store and it doesn't work. Their support people are then wasting their time 
dealing with a thing that they don't technically support, that they didn't yeah. publish. And so that can be a problem. The thing I would say is do your due diligence and make sure that whatever thing you're publishing, you have the rights to publish. And if you don't, then we reserve the right to remove it. And we have removed some software from the store. Um, we've removed some where we've identified that it definitely shouldn't be there. And we've also had developers contact us and say, please remove this thing because it's you know ours and it can't be redistributed. Okay. Then I suspect there are things on the Snap Store that maybe should not be there. There is a report app button on the page. Feel free to hit the report app button if you feel <laughs> <Okay>. something <laughs> should be reported. We don't want it to get a reputation for having all kinds of dodgy software in it. That's, you know, and anything. And right. You don't want to be the conditions. pirate bay of software or something right, like that. Exactly. Right? This is something that's been on my mind and something that uh, a lot of people have been talking about lately. And that is gaming on Linux. Something near and dear to my heart lately. And, mm -hmm. uh, I feel like, and this is not a barometer of what is true, but I feel like the chatter that I hear in the community that I'm tapped into, a lot of people are saying, hey, if you're gaming on Linux, pop OS. Do you have a reaction to that? Do you feel like that is something you're hearing as well? Um, well, I hear it because System76 tell people that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's I have told people that also. You're, you're quoting... Uh, marketing material directly from uh, System76 there, I believe. Now, well, and not... also from and also from Linus Tech Tips, right? And, who were provided you know, a system and... by System76 and given marketing material. Uh, okay, so the reason the reason I'm asking you this, I, I shouldn't have hidden that question underneath, but people have expressed an interest in Ubuntu adopting a rolling release model. So that there would be newer drivers, newer software, you know, newer versions of Wine, all of that. Is that something that, that Canonical has ever entertained? And do you think that would be um, a positive or a negative for Ubuntu? So gamers are one facet of computing. Um, they're a very loud and opinionated facet of computing when you compare them to desktop users who just want to open an Office document, right? they are one of the stakeholders in what we make. And so, you know, we listen to those, that input. And over the years, we have considered doing a rolling release. The last time we seriously considered it was, gosh, some years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago was the last time we considered it seriously. And part of the problem is software vendors actually some of them tie their software releases into our release cadence. They know that there's an LTS coming up. They know that there's a release coming up and they schedule their releases around our software releases because they want to be available for that version of mm -hmm. Ubuntu. I, I think it's certainly something we we need to look into again. Um, I've had a chat over beer with Martin about this multiple times about do we change from being a six monthly cycle to maybe having something where there's an LTS and then you're just rolling in between one LTS and the other and you're just aiming for the next LTS and then if you want to you carry on rolling to the next LTS but it's mm -hmm. difficult because for a long time we've had these six monthly releases and a lot of people rely on those six monthly releases so it's a balancing act because while this might be good for gamers it might not be good for a whole raft of other people who rely on using ubuntu 
Well, in that, like from a marketing point of view, I have to imagine that six month release cadence also gives Canonical an opportunity to kind of get into the spotlight, right? Every several months and highlight yeah. new features and get their headlines out there. That's, that's in my mind, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, and plus it's just what people have come to expect, right? Right. And, but that doesn't mean change is not allowed or we don't entertain the idea of change. I mean, that's just the status quo, right? But we also, we do change things in order to cater for stuff like gamers. Like we mm-hmm. recently made it more easy for the foundations team to backport newer versions of the NVIDIA driver to LTS releases of Ubuntu. And that benefits anyone who's got an NVIDIA card. Now I appreciate that some people are not serviced by that, that driver and use other uh, GPUs from other vendors. And sometimes there's going to be a window in the Ubuntu release cycle where that ISO is no good for you. And I'm yeah. sorry about that, but that's just the way it is. We can't shift everything just because AMD have bought out a new GPU. That's not the way the release cycle works. There's too many other moving parts for us to just down tools and say, okay, everybody stop. AMD have a new driver. Everybody stop. Because for the vast majority of users, that doesn't matter. Do you guys have a line of communication with the AMD Linux team? All of them. You know, it's just as difficult for us to ask them to move their release as it is for them to ask us. They wouldn't (laughs) ask us to move our release. Just like we can't tell them, could you please change your marketing strategy? However, there (laughs) are... Please change your release date to April 2020. Because, you know, we've got this new LTS. Yeah. But there are some companies where we do align more closely where there is you know strategic advantage to both sides and we certainly do have things that are lined up for 2004 that where people have shifted timelines in order to meet that that deadline for sure you know speaking of 2004 i have to just say that i love the default yaru look i've seen uh, a few of your videos and the the clean install just looks so good it's got yeah. that just you know, splash of little, like a purple gray. And it's just, it's really nice. But one of, one of my listeners asked, how, how deeply involved are you guys in the development of? So the Ubuntu desktop team is uh, a bunch of people who've worked on GNOME for a long time. We work with the upstream GNOME project. We have people on the desktop team who commit patches to upstream GNOME. We're active on their bug tracker so yeah we're, we're super active members of the gnome community just like all the other uh stakeholders like elementary like endless uh like fedora developers uh we're all just as active as the others i, I know there's this whole meme that ubuntu doesn't contribute to upstream projects and it's a thing i've heard a thousand times for 15 years and it's still just as wrong as it was 15 years ago we do contribute the problem is that people sometimes don't see the contributions that they should see and uh, feel that we should be contributing in different ways. You know, how dare you do that? You should do this. Uh, And the world doesn't work like that. So the desktop team contribute to GNOME. In fact, the, the packaging of the latest release of GNOME that's been done for Ubuntu was also done for Debian by Canonical. So the packaging of GNOME in Debian was done by us. We contribute to Debian just like anyone else contributes to Debian. Uh, I'm not saying that makes us, you know, better than anyone else, but 
People often think that we just consume from Debian all these packages and rebrand them as Ubuntu, and that's all we do. And that's far from the case. We contribute both to upstream GNOME, but also contribute to upstream Debian. And then we get the benefit of the work we did in Debian, just like everyone else gets the benefit of the work we did in Debian. You know, I'm I'm so I'm so tired of hearing that mentality, that argument that, oh well. This is just a reskin of Debian. This is just a reskin of Ubuntu. Reskin, reskin, mm-hmm. reskin. It's like, man, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because people are just grumpy or if because the distributions aren't aren't doing a good enough job really talking about what they're doing to improve the entire ecosystem, what they're doing, what they're sending upstream, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a mixture of both. Uh, it could well be. Uh, I know, I know there are some people out there who just don't like us and, uh, don't like the work we do and never will. And there's nothing I can do to change their minds. And that's fine. It's fine to have opinions. You know, I personally don't like BMWs. I'm not going to go around telling everyone who has a BMW, especially not their new logo. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen it. Oh Um, my God. They went into this whole like, oh, we're going to make a flat design of the BMW logo. It's atrocious. It's atrocious. People were like, I'm not, you're not putting that on my car. <laughs> anyway, so, just to be clear, um, I have never owned a BMW, and I don't intend to own neither. a BMW. But me that, neither. I never will. That, that doesn't make that doesn't mean that the people who work on it are terrible people, and the people who own them or choose to use it are terrible people. And I feel the same way about Linux. People seem so invested in the distribution other people use, and dis- so invested in the distribution other people work on. It's just so negative, and I hate it. Coming back to your point, I think you're right. There is a lack of understanding in the community of what Canonical does. And yes, it's far from just repackaging stuff that's in Debian and, and pushing it out as Ubuntu. The work that the security team do on making sure that there are updates, security updates for all these CVEs out there. And those go into Ubuntu, into the Ubuntu archive, and then are used by all the derivative distributions like Elementary, like System76 and all the others that are and Linux Mint, they're all based off Ubuntu. They're using the work of the canonical security team and the kernel team and the foundations team but to everyone outside of this community, they just see it as, well, there's a bunch of packages in the Ubuntu archive. We're just using that. There are people behind mm. those packages. There are people who are creating yeah. those packages and working on that stuff all day, every day. And someone's paying them. And it happens to be canonical that are paying them. So what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about canonical? Is it that? Is it what we just talked about or, or perhaps something different? Yeah, I think I think it's partly I think people misunderstand our motives. I think they think we're doing things to subvert the Linux community, like we're trying to be in inverted commas the next Apple or the next Microsoft or like yeah, WSL. We're trying to. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that's always a tough conversation to to dance around is, you know, why use Ubuntu if I can use Ubuntu on Windows? So use it, I, you know, use it. You're still using Ubuntu. You're still using the work we've done. So yeah, we win yeah. anyway. So like, it's, I think one thing that people don't appreciate is that there are people behind those packages and there are people behind those emails and there are people behind those blog posts. And we've all worked in free software for a long time. And we're not indoctrinated into some kind of cult of Ubuntu. It's just that, we think Ubuntu does it really well. And 
if there are things that are wrong with it, we want to fix it just as much as you do. And just like every open source project, there are many more bugs than there are human beings possible to fix all those bugs. Um, mm. But we try and we try and prioritize them. We try and get stuff fixed that is important, that we think is important to users and our customers and our partners. And there, there's stuff that happens behind the scenes that people don't even know about. Like we have deals with OEMs to ship Ubuntu on those devices. And that means we often do hardware enablement. And so there are upcoming laptops with new audio hardware. I think it uses DMIC, DMIC, and Soundwine or Soundwire, something like that. I don't know. It's not mm -hmm. my area of expertise. And the work that happens in uh, the firmware, the kernel, BlueZ, Pulse, and Alsa all needs to be coordinated in order to get that hardware working on that laptop. And there's teams of engineers who work on getting that hardware working. So when you go and buy a laptop and you stick an Ubuntu CD in or you stick an Arch CD in or whatever CD you want, the fact that that works is sometimes because somewhere in Taipei, there are engineers working for Canonical who make that work. Um, and I think that's that's a thing that people just don't don't realize actually happens that we do actually work with vendors to make stuff work. I realized it happened, but not in that specific of a way. There's an office in Taipei where they have piles and piles of laptops before they're ever released to the public, uh, prototype laptops from all the tier one vendors. And we do our best to like ensure that the hardware works on, on Ubuntu, on all of them. You're not talking about OEMs you have deals with, are you? Well, they don't have any OS on them when we when we get them, and they're not they're not even out in the shops yet. We get them before they're released. But they're not um, intended to be sold with Ubuntu. They might be. They might be. Some but are. You're, you're ensuring that Ubuntu works on them regardless, is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Nice. Nice. Okay. So they ship us laptops. Uh, we do whatever engineering is required, and one of the features in 2004 is if you put the USB the USB key in to install on one of these brand new laptops, if it's determined that you need a funky kernel that's slightly tweaked for that particular hardware, then the installer detects that and says, hey, I've detected that this machine is supported by this specific kernel that we made. Tick this box and it will go and get that kernel and load that one on. So that it means that newer machines that we've certified will be easier to install on with a stock 24 key. Like new Surface laptops, where there's that specialized Surface-centric kernel? Uh, it I, could go out and... I'm not asking you to say specifically, but that it's that kind of functionality, right? Where there's... So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't say specifically which ones, but... That's really fascinating, though. The goal is that in the future, you know, you could buy a machine that you know is supported, and we under the covers put the right kernel on there to support all the hardware the funky the funky hardware that's inside that that laptop that's i didn't know that either mm. that's really interesting that's incredible all right alan i have one more tough question for you and that's it and it's oh, a real I, doozy I, I, I didn't think we'd got to the tough questions yet <laughs> really okay <laughs> how can you prove that ubuntu is the most popular linux distribution <laughs> so i guess this is because Oh man, this is a good question. Cuz we do hear that a lot, right? And I think that I think that common sense dictates that yeah, Ubuntu probably is, but you know, there's um you also see headlines and you see 
press releases from people like Zorin saying, hey, Zorin OS 15 is, has hit almost a million downloads in nine months. And I think that's impressive, but I don't have any kind of metric to compare it against. Yeah, it's difficult because numbers are generally commercially sensitive for any organization. It's different yeah. for a one-man band or a tiny Linux distribution that, uh, you know, wants to, you know, talk up where they've got to. They've hit a milestone, you know, we've got a thousand mm-hmm. downloads or we've got a million downloads or whatever it is. And they want to talk that up to let people know that people are downloading this thing. What I would say is downloads are a terrible, terrible measure of your popularity. Having seen the web stats for uh, the Ubuntu ISO downloads, they in no way translate to users. There's no correlation between the number of times your ISO is downloaded and the number of people using it. You know, in the in the last several months, I have downloaded various versions of Ubuntu probably 10 times. Mm. And I'm just one it, user. So. Yeah, right. And I've downloaded the ISOs, the, the <laughs> non-release ISOs, multiple times over the last week to do my, my mm-hmm. videos. It's It's really difficult. And you can look at third-party things, like you can look at the Steam survey. I wouldn't look at things like the contributions to the ProtonDB because they're a different class of user. And a lot of them will run Arch or Manjaro or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly seen people talking about how something is the top of that list, therefore it's the most popular. It's most popular among that that niche of like it's the it's the parasite on the fly on the back of the dog. Like it's it's such a tiny <laughs> subset what? of the whole entity if linux is the dog i mean we're probably the flea in fact um (laughs) but i don't have a good answer for you because i always try and cite third parties who have good data and third parties that have good data are things like steam survey wikimedia um various net surveys anything which is a popularity contest where you click on things dismiss out of hand because they can be easily gamed for example distro watch don't get me started on distro watch um, <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's an entirely different episode <laughs> yeah so the the measure for distro watch is it's a it's a measure of people clicking on pages right it's a measure of people clicking on release pages news pages and the individual distro pages notice when there's a news article for elementary on the front page of distro watch you'll notice that it rises up the list the the stats is that because elementary is more more users now or is it just because they've written an article about it and it links directly to that page in the article i think it's more likely that occam's razor Hmm. is at work here it's difficult because we get given uh data by third parties like we've you know been given access to information by uh companies who monitor this kind of stuff and so we know it is Mm -hmm. um but unfortunately, it's not our data and we can't share it. And that's that's frustrating. Um, what I can point to is the numbers that other people have published. Some of the other distros have published their user numbers as far as they can track them. Um, interestingly, PPAs have stats on them. You can actually get stats of how many people are downloading things from PPAs. And some Linux distributions have PPAs enabled by default. And so as a result from that, Uh, you can extrapolate roughly how many users a distro has by how many times the PPA is hit when a new release of a package hits that PPA. And so hmm. there there are some ways to see, you know, with data that's out there, but there is, I don't think there will ever be a 
here's a list of all the distros and here's how many users they have. Can you point to growth? Uh, one of the one of the metrics that we um, uh, we show every few months at internal company events is uh, the number of people who have certain snaps installed, high profile, you know, that everyone's heard of. A while ago, we would go to an event and talk about the you know the the hundred k club. The, <laughs> the the snaps that have hit hundred thousand installs, and then it became the two hundred k club very soon afterwards, and then it becomes the five hundred k club. And so, yes, there is growth. It's great to see uh, popular applications being used by a lot of people on a regular basis on on Linux. Yeah. So, yeah, it it is growing. Um, maybe not as exponentially as you know we'd like. Maybe it would be great if. You know, that percentage we see in the Steam survey grew a little bit faster, but it's it's difficult. It's, uh, It'd be it's nice not, to see that over, overall, just in terms of yeah, yeah, Linux totally. gaming, it would be nice to see instead of those, you know, hey, it went from 0.8 to 0.82 or something. Yeah. Do you think there's anything um, that needs to happen to, to have a just a complete sea change in user perception and adoption of desktop Linux. One thing that has to happen for the mind share and the market share to explode. Okay, do you want the controversial answer? I Whatever answer you want to give me. Okay, I'll give you the controversial answer. Stop making other distros and only focus on Ubuntu. There's your, there's your controversial answer is forget all the other distros. Okay, only, here we go. Only promote Ubuntu. Go. There you go. If you promote all these other distros, all these other niches, then it's very difficult. You paralyze the users with choice. Uh, if you if you give them just one option, just like there is one option for Windows and there's one option for OS X, macOS. Yes. Give them yeah. one option. That's that's the contentious uh, one. Because I, I know- mean, I don't know if I would call it contentious necessarily, but- uh, It would I, be among people been... who don't use Ubuntu. <laughs> but- you know what? If if I were to start a desktop Linux alliance, and I were to you know realize that to get people in the door, you have to show them one attractive thing, then I probably would choose Ubuntu. Why not show people through the door and then let them discover the buffet on their own? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I agree. The the difficulty is trying to get. Uh, the Linux community, like you're herding cats, trying to get them all pulling in the same direction. And I think that's why a number of distros uh, are kind of, like you look at Endless, they're Mm -hmm. pretty much outside of the Linux distro ecosystem. They, 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 they contribute, they're, they're part of the ecosystem, but they're, they're not seen like many of the other distros because they have a very specific use case and a very specific target audience. Um, and so they do things that are slightly different from everyone else and they get a free pass on doing that because they're outside our community. And I think because they don't depend upon all of us community advocating for endless because they've got a marketing budget to do that. I think as there, there are more distros that are going to start doing that and separate themselves off and say, look, you can carry on doing your advocacy, but we'll do our thing on our own because trying to get them all working together is is like trying to get all, I mean, alert, car analogy coming. Um, it's like trying to get 
all the motor vehicle manufacturers working together. They just they just won't. They might do it on things like safety and stuff that's being regulated that they have to do, but you'll never find all the motor vehicle manufacturers making a common platform to build cars upon. It's never going to happen because they they all want their own commercial advantage, and the same thing happens for Linux distros as well. It's such a it's such a tough conversation to have, and I get people coming to me all the time. Hey, I saw an article. I heard your podcast. What distribution should I choose? And and I started realizing that we have to answer those questions with a bunch more questions. Right? Are you you know Do you want to use something like DaVinci Resolve? Are you a content creator? Are you a coder? Um, do you like how Windows looks? Do you like how Ubuntu looks? Do you like how it's just, there's so many questions because it's so fragmented and there's so much crippling, but amazing choice <laughs> there for people. But I have to sort of reluctantly agree that I think you're right. I think that that is the answer. That is everybody rally behind Ubuntu or X distro, right? Or Fedora or d- rally behind one, pick one. And that's what you recommend. And then you ask them those questions. And, you know, once they're in the door and they understand Linux and they understand what they're doing, then they can just kind of discover everything else on their own. But and then and then that should lead to hardware manufacturers shipping hard shipping laptops with this one distro and uh, supports easier to find communities easier to find. So I mean, it's it's a tough it's a tough conversation, though. The problem is the things you've just described, we've already done. We've already got hardware vendors selling machines running Ubuntu. And we've already got the documentation. And like, Those need to be sold. Like, we need to walk into a Best Buy and Walmart and see an XPS 13 developer edition. That is tricky. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if 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 Ubuntu didn't exist, what, what distro would you use? So the distro I used before Ubuntu was Debian. Uh, okay. I would, that makes sense. I would probably go back to using Debian if Ubuntu didn't exist. Yeah. All right. We have a few more minutes. I want to talk about your YouTube channel. Because <laughs> okay. I am, I am kind of falling in love with YouTube lately and you've been, you've been a content machine over there. Uh, <laughs> how, I mean, are you enjoying it? You, you've just, you just kind of like, Hey, it's my lunch break. I'm going to show you what a brand new Ubuntu 2004 install <laughs> looks like. And it's, it's really compelling, and it's been a lot of engagement there on your, you know, oh, comments. You. Yeah. And uh, are you? Is it something you're kind of looking at growing, or is this just like the Ubuntu 2004 hype cycle? <laughs> it's a bit of both. Um, so I have access to the Ubuntu uh, YouTube channel, and I have access to the Snapcraft uh, Ubuntu channel, and all of my content is fits into one of those two buckets. It's either Ubuntu mm-hmm. or Snapcraft. I I feel I can't really publish the stuff that I'm doing in my lunch hour on either of those two channels. It's not professional enough for the Ubuntu one. And I don't particularly want to go down the road of creating a whole load of like super animated titles and the, the stuff you've done on your I'm in awe of the stuff you've done on your Believe channel. Me, you don't. Of like, <laughs> I regret like, I kind of regret coming out of the gate with even a little bit of polish because now it's you're always trying to one up yourself, try and make it look better, and you're spending eight right. hours editing, you know, four different quad split screen things together, and oh my gosh! And you just you right. sit there and and you talk, and it's and it's interesting, and it's yeah. you know, it's nice to watch. So I I don't know, maybe maybe if I get time, I'll you know do some titles like. Do you know the way I do it is so the two laptops behind me, one is a ThinkPad X220, and the other is a 
Entroware Athena. And the Entroware mm. Athena is running OBS and hardware capture card capturing the output of the ThinkPad X220. So it makes it easy because in OBS, I just press record and it just records whatever's on the screen of the ThinkPad. And so I could just sit and talk into the microphone and just do stuff on the laptop and record that and then hit stop. And I do zero editing. I don't overdub oh, the audio. Yeah, exactly. So that what was the dream. whole goal because I know how painful it is doing the video editing. And the slide is I take a screenshot of some way through the video and then I paste that into LibreOffice and I put a title over the top of it, screenshot that. <laughs> full screen and <laughs> screenshot that and then i upload that as the thumbnail that's how i do thumbnails and it's oh, it's man. really low low effort but it's good fun and i and i don't want it to be all encompassing because i have a job to do i can't i can't sit and do all the stuff that's necessary to make a super i'm, yeah. I'm never gonna be mkbhd or any of those like high-end youtubers i know because this is a super niche thing and it has a very limited audience and i'm amazed at how many people have subscribed a, a significant part of that is thanks to joe collins um seeing one of my videos making a video mm -hmm. like it and then linking to mine and then suddenly i've got a jump in in people oh, so nice. it's that that was a significant help um, but yeah, I, I plan to continue doing this, uh, as long as I've got things to say and people want me to do it and people keep asking questions and saying, how do I do this? And how do I do that? So, and I try and keep them short so I could do them in my lunch hour and yeah, just hit record I can't believe you knock all that out in a lunch hour. I mean, that's, <laughs> have you seen the quality? Maybe, I need, to, maybe <laughs> I need to get back <laughs> to basics. Maybe I'll get back to basics and just do, well, you know what I was amazed at is I, um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do a Let's Play. You know, those Let's Play videos that were uh -huh. all the rage back in the day. And I'm going to play through like Halo Master Chief. Uh, well, Halo Combat Evolved on, on Steam Proton. And I'm just going to talk and have fun. And there was a 40-minute video that I knocked out in two hours with editing and everything. And wow. I was like, hmm, maybe I need to explore this a little more. But I noticed you're on library as well. What do you mm -hmm. think about library? Is it? Just open-ended question. What do you think about it? Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, I, I've put my content on there for a couple of reasons. One, to test it out, and one, because I made a snap of the client, and I wanted to test it and make sure it works. So it's mm -hmm. my dog fooding is trying out the client. Um, I'm, I'm a little sad that a, a significant amount of the content on there is stuff I'm just not interested in. It's a lot of crypto nonsense a lot of Bitcoin mm -hmm. stuff that I just don't care about, which is unsurprising given it's a blockchain-based platform, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, if you think about YouTube, there's a significant amount of YouTube that I don't care about, that I don't want to watch. But the YouTube algorithm only surfaces stuff that I probably do want to watch, whereas library just shows me everything, and I still see all the stuff that I don't want to watch. Does it do that even if you uh, have told it topics that you want to follow? Uh, I th think I've told it topics I want to follow. So it tells me things in topics and then there's the, yeah, so you're right. You can filter it a bit better than, than just show you everything. You're right. I think it depends on where you're using it. You know, like if you're using yeah. it on the desktop versus on the, the, the Android app or something, it's kind of a different presentation, what it shows you. But I have found library really interesting. It's, I I wish that there was more engagement there because their mm. comment system seems to be just non-existent or broken and there's, you know, no notifications or anything like that. But 
One really interesting thing that I've discovered there is the tip system, the the generosity of the people, even though they're not shouting comments at you and they're just watching and they're leaving a tip. But I've noticed that once I converted the the LBC that I have from those tips into, you know, BTC, Bitcoin, and then into like regular fiat currency, right? If I were to take all that out of my wallet and turn it into real money, I would have more from library tips than what I have made on YouTube since I got monetized with 20 times the audience and 35 times the views. Yeah, it's the fact that it's based on like magic internet beans and not proper money <laughs> is... What, what are beans? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh, I, sh- I haven't uploaded that one. I should upload Why that Why are one. beans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not super into the crypto stuff. Um, it's nice having a little counter that goes up, and it's nice that people feel the, you know, the generosity to to tip a little bit. Um, but yeah, things like the comment system on YouTube, YouTube Studio, where you can just refresh the page oh, yeah. and just bang out a reply to someone really quickly is is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And so the engagement yeah. is much higher on YouTube. It's weird. Until I started um, doing content on YouTube, I never looked at it as a social platform. Mm a social media platform, but it kind of is mm. in a sense. Yeah. It's, it's really And people come back and, you know, they'll, you'll get people who give repeat comments or, you know, mm-hmm. refer back to and reply to other people and say, Oh no, Alan covered that, you know, in three videos ago or something. It's, it's great. I love it. All right. Alan Pope, last question. What's your favorite Ubuntu release of all time? I don't know oh, who asked this, man. but it's a great question. Oh, no, it was Eric Londo. Eric Londo of uh, Linux++. Plus Plus. Plus. Right. Yeah. yeah. What was your favorite Ubuntu release of all time? Not the most performant or modern, but just the one you were most excited about. Oh, man. <laughs> that might be the toughest question. Yeah, it is. Totally is. Like, obviously, marketing and PR answer is the latest release is obviously the best one. Yeah, yeah. 2004 yeah. is the best one. Everyone should use that. Uh, I think probably 14.04. It had Unity that had matured enough that it was robust, stable, performant. It had long-term support. There are still people running 14.04 now. Nearly six years after it came out, there are people still running 14.04. In fact... And they have another four years, don't they? Is that how... Uh, Yes, 10 years for ESM. Yeah. yeah. And did you know... This is a thing that I don't think many people know. Uh, if you're running an ESM-supported release of Ubuntu, like 14.04, I'm not using this as a segue to an advert, but if you're running uh, 14.04, you can have ESM, extended support, for free for up to three machines. And if you're an Ubuntu contributor, you can have it for free for up to 50 machines. 50, five zero. Five zero. yeah. Five you, zero. Yeah, and you'll get those extended extended support lifecycle for the additional five years if you're an Ubuntu contributor. So I think 14.04 would probably be my my favorite. I, I dug that X220 out of a cupboard um, a few months ago, and it was still running 14.04. And wow. when I booted it up, and I thought, wow, this is fast, and realized <laughs> that Unity was pretty quick by the end, by, by the end of its life. Well, I like to to end these conversations by asking how people can get involved with Ubuntu and contribute. Cause there's obviously 
plenty of uh, of opportunity for that, right? But is there anything specifically right now that that you guys are looking for? Yeah, right now, uh, I'm going to do a video later this week. It may tie in with your release uh, uh, of this podcast. Um, hopefully, I'll give you a link if it is. Uh, right now, we're getting close to 2004 and so one of the things that needs doing is a focus on translations because you know i'm i'm an english speaker and i have everything set to english but obviously around the world there are other languages which are just as important whether it's spanish or brazilian portuguese or french or german or whatever and we have large communities in those regions that speak those languages so i think i think if people can uh spend some time if you are uh multilingual and can do the translations that would be super helpful beneficial way that's non-technical it's it's not hard to do translations and it's a really great easy way to contribute to ubuntu and where uh, where do they go to get started with that uh if you go to translate.launchpad.net i think uh slash okay. ubuntu should take you to the okay. right place or just or just uh ping you on twitter yeah or ping me well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I could probably sit here and talk to you all day, but, you know. Yeah, I, I have a job I know we've do. got schedules and I have to edit and, you know. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, no um, it's been a blast and we should do it again very soon. Absolutely. Anything else that you guys just want to plug? No, not at all. Just uh, I'd put a call out to people to think maybe twice before thinking that we're doing everything to be evil. We're actually nice people. <laughs> Canonical. We are not evil. <laughs> Actually nice people. <laughs> Actually nice people. That should be on the website. <laughs> That's going to do it for episode 30. Thank you once again to Alan Pope for taking a serious chunk out of his day to come and chat with me. I hope you found the value in uh, everything that he had to say, whether you agree or disagree. I really appreciated how candid he was about some very difficult topics. If you want to see a good chunk of our conversation on video, then uh, you can head over to youtube.com slash Linux for everyone or lbry.tv slash at Linux for everyone. On the video platforms, I'll be breaking our conversation into some, some themes. And I think that's also a, a great way to digest it and especially to see uh, some some toys that Alan has in his office and and just uh, it just seemed more engaging to me actually chatting with him over video and I think that that comes across to the audience as well. Anyway guys I'm going to get out of here. I'll see you very soon and until we chat again, take care and take care of each other. See ya. That's the joy of working from home. That's the only reason why I took the job is so I don't have to shave anymore. Well, the bottom half of me is pajamas, so... <laughs> oh, you wear clothes <laughs> on your bottom half. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I saw um, a... Uh, there's a journalist I follow in the UK called Kate Bevan, and she was... Uh, a lot of people were tweeting out their tips for remote working because, you know, a lot uh, of people are suddenly having to remote work. And uh, a lot of people who do this on a regular basis are giving their sagely advice. And hers was, have nighttime pajamas and daytime pajamas. And make sure you get out of your nighttime pajamas into your daytime pajamas when you're working. Because that'll make you feel more professional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It'll make you realize you're actually at work. You're not, you're not in oh, bed anymore. I love anymore. it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> it actually makes sense when I, when I read it. I was like, 
Yeah, that's... And then I thought, no. Yeah.